For nearly 18 months, the United States and its allies have shored up Ukraine with advanced weapons and ammunition. Early on, a policy office deep in the Pentagon coordinated efforts to enlist more than 50 countries to gather up not only weapons, but also medical supplies, ambulances and clothing. Laura Cooper is Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia, or RUE. For her work in the Ukraine situation, she's also a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program, and she joins me now. Ms. Cooper, good to have you with us. Thanks. Happy to be here. And this was called the RUE before the Russian-Ukraine situation, correct, this office? Yes, absolutely. This office has existed for years and years working on Russia, working on building partnerships with Ukraine and a number of other countries of Eurasia. All right. And when the invasion happened and it became the policy of Congress and of the administration to help Ukraine with various supplies, what did you do? How did you get started and how did it fall to your office of all places to coordinate all of this? Well, it's important to note that I have a team that includes people who have long been working to support Ukraine in building its armed forces so that it could defend itself against Russian aggression. Russia invaded the first time in 2014, and so we have been assisting the Ukrainians ever since. But the scale and scope of the challenge that was presented by Russia's brutal and unprovoked invasion on February 24th of 2022 really presented an unprecedented challenge. While before the large-scale invasion, we had been supporting Ukraine with roughly $300 million a year in security assistance, equipment, and training, suddenly we were supporting Ukraine with billions of dollars of assistance, and we had to keep ahead head of the battlefield to provide Ukraine with what it needed, when it needed it, and anticipate what would be most helpful in pushing back against Russian aggression. So we stood up an entirely new system for supporting decisions on security assistance. And Secretary Austin, the Secretary of Defense, took a day-to-day oversight role in leading not just the United States effort, but really in leading an international effort to support Ukraine. So we developed an in-house effort to develop these packages very rapidly, involving hundreds of people across the department in the decision-making process, but on a very rapid basis. And then we developed an international effort called the Ukraine Defense Contact Group that brings together 50 defense ministers every single month to consider what are Ukraine's most urgent needs and then to coordinate assistance. Yeah, so it sounds like you have got people around the world almost on speed dial to discuss these things. We do indeed. Whether it's our allies in Australia or our many NATO allies in Europe, we are in regular contact with countries all around the world. And we're obviously in regular contact with the Ukrainians. So we're talking to the Ukrainians every day. And we're inviting the Ukrainians to these Ukraine Defense Contact Group meetings to explain what they need and to talk about the battlefield situation and be able to enlist the support of all these countries. So we share these battlefield requirements with countries around the world, and then we ensure that there aren't gaps in what Ukraine needs so that the U.S. and all of our allies and partners can help them down to the minute. 
And how do you thread the needle between what Congress and the administration may have authorized, just to make an extreme example, if Ukraine said, well, we'd like to have a squadron of F-35s. Well, nobody said they could have that, and that's not being paid for and so on. Yet they do have specific requirements of military gear. How does it work to decide what it is they specifically get, given what Congress authorizes and what the administration agrees to? With every assistance package, with every decision, we are looking at first and foremost, what does Ukraine need right now? And can we get it to them and enable them to use it very quickly? In some cases, there are equipment items that we know they need, we know they can make use of, but they don't have the training. So we embark on training programs to enable them to make best use of this assistance. We did this, for example, with the M777 artillery system, the howitzers that we provided. We recognized in the spring of 2022 that the battlefield was changing and it was evolving from something that required a lot of anti-tank weapons to something that required a lot of artillery systems. So we got out ahead of it, we identified that requirement, and we set up a training program for the Ukrainians. We did the same thing with the HIMARS system, which has been so helpful in being able to provide longer-range targeting of Russian positions. But you can't do that with everything. You know, some systems require a lot of time to train on because they're very sophisticated. That's certainly true of a lot of aircraft. And also, you have to consider availability. You know, we have been drawing down a lot of equipment through this presidential drawdown authority, so taking it right from U.S. stocks or asking allies and partners to take right from their stocks. And you can certainly do that with some items, but you get to a point where you run out of equipment, and we certainly have to maintain supplies for our own forces for any contingencies that might emerge that would require them to have this capability. So then you get into procurement, and we do have a really vigorous procurement system. It's under the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, where we go out and purchase or encourage you know, defense industry to build equipment for Ukraine. But that's a longer timeline. And so we always have to balance these questions of capability requirements and then, you know, the timeliness of what we can provide. We're speaking with Laura Cooper. She's Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals Program. And give us a sense of what else besides some of these sophisticated weapon systems that is going there. Your citation mentioned blankets and winter clothing and this kind of thing also, besides weapons and ordnance. Well, I think, you know, starting with the winter clothing item, I think this was one where certainly the U.S. did provide some military-grade winter clothing. You can imagine it is very cold on the battlefield in the middle of winter in Ukraine, and you want the Ukrainian armed forces to be outfitted with kit that protects them and enables them to continue to fight. But it actually was the Allies that provided some of the most impressive winter clothing and, you know, gear that helped the Ukrainians through the winter. We had several of our, uh, you know, our Canadian allies and our Nordic allies that, as you can imagine, have pretty exceptional winter gear and really dug deep into their stocks to make sure that the Ukrainians had what they needed. Another really important item that we have provided from the United States and other countries as well 
are ambulances, and that includes armored ambulances so that injured Ukrainian forces can be taken right from the battlefield to medical care, saving lives. And so I'm really proud of the ambulances and armored ambulances that we and others have been able to provide, just as an example. And what's it like in the office? I mean, you're involved day by day in a kinetic and dynamic situation, both over there and, frankly, over here with what people are debating and so forth, what Congress is thinking about, what the administration is talking about. So how do you maintain that level of pace? What's it like day to day? Well, I will say the pace is not easy. It is brisk. Sometimes I would say grueling. Start very, very early. We provide the secretary with his 6.30 a.m. morning report every day. And you do have people here uh, rather late as well. But I think the thing to emphasize is just how motivated and dedicated and really talented this crew is. You know, I am a longtime Pentagon civil servant. I actually was in the Pentagon on 9-11. So I have seen over my years of service amazing dedication and motivation. But I will tell you I have never seen anything like this. Every day people come into the office and whether they're working on, you know, a spreadsheet that is delineating all of the costs of various equipment items for the next package or they're on the phone early in the morning with allies in Europe or, you know, late in the evening with allies in the Indo-Pacific, they are motivated because they know this is historic and what they are doing is going to have a lasting impact on international security, that if we don't help Ukraine to succeed, if we don't stand up to this egregious act of aggression and violence and brutality by Russia, then we will be living in a very dark world. And so, you know, my team is very motivated and very determined. Laura Cooper is Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, and she's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. 
And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I 
went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. 
Shane, right. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.